we are about to talk about Maya Kowalski and her experience with medical abuse of power. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I am here with Lynn, and today we are talking about medical abuse of power. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the Maya Kowalski case that many of us have heard about from the Netflix documentary, Take Care of Maya. Thank you so much, Lynn, for coming in today and hanging out with me. Well, thanks for having me. We do have an extra special guest, so hopefully he keeps his noises to a minimum. So far, so good. Um, And apparently I can podcast with one hand. Who knew? Who knew? Lynn, tell me what you've been uh, enjoying lately at Starbucks. I used to be a pumpkin spice fan, but now I'm just kind of like normal vanilla latte. I have been really adventurous this year and I used to just like a chai with uh, almond milk and that was it but lately I've needed a little more caffeine and I've been going with the brown sugar oat milk shake and espresso but last night I had the sugar cookie latte with oat milk and that was really good that sounds delicious also I'm really glad you're back in the studio because I don't think you've been here since season one right yeah it's been a long time we wanted to start by talking about the Kowalski case today okay and it's especially adventurous interesting to do that since the trial ended yesterday maya and her family kind of kicked johns hopkins ass i mean yes it was pretty momentous it was groundbreaking it's my understanding that nothing like that has ever been won yeah we'll get into that later uh nicole's gonna come on with her legal mind in a little bit and share uh, about the trial we're gonna dig into the fun of that um because that was a wild ride so we're just gonna do like a quick overview of what happened to the kowalski family just in case you don't know i think a lot of people at this point have heard about the situation even if they haven't seen the documentary but i just kind of wanted to do a quick overview so there was some context the kowalski family was originally from chicago i think they moved here like 10 years ago and the dad is jack and he was a firefighter and the mom is beata she is originally from poland and she is a nurse and they have two kiddos the older one is a girl named maya and the younger one is a boy named kyle They're living in, you know, Florida, the Sunshine State, loving life, super cute kiddos, incredibly intelligent. Yes. I mean, from what we've seen of Maya, like she is a pretty extraordinary individual. And I think that what she's gone through has definitely made her strong. Absolutely. But I think even before she had CRPS, she had this incredible talent in playing piano. It sounded like everything she did, she was just really good at. Incredibly smart. She was in all of the gifted type programs. The experience that we've had watching her through the trial, like we've all kind of picked up on that she is wise beyond her age. Very much so. So Maya starts getting sick. I think when she was younger, like even before this, she had asthma. So that was like an ongoing thing, but that was like, you know, just like a normal situation that a lot of kids have. She started having like these coughing episodes and pain. And so the family went to all these doctors and could not 
find an answer. They went to doctor after doctor who would throw their hands up and say, we don't know what this is. I think they were mostly just attacking symptoms instead of really doing good investigating to find out what all these symptoms together mean. I'm sure that was really frustrating for a nurse <laughs> to have her kiddo be like hurting and not know how to fix it. From my understanding, Beata was, she would come home from work at night and just research, research and try and find out what could possibly be the cause of her daughter's um, issues. She She's an infusion nurse. One of her patients overheard her on the phone talking about Maya's symptoms and said, that sounds an awful lot like CRPS. And she was like, what's CRPS? And they had a conversation about it. This patient recommended her to go to Dr. K. Yes. And so she goes to Dr. K. He says later that when he saw her, he could see right away that she had a lot of the symptoms and he did an evaluation for CRPS and diagnosed her with CRPS. He explained during the trial that he actually found a way to do objective testing where it's not like opinion based, but he kind of developed a way to do an objective pain scale instead of just saying like, what's your pain? Zero to 10. And we, we can get into that in a later episode, but he diagnosed I think they started with PTNOT, which is the standard for CRPS. Just a quick run through CRPS. So it's complex regional pain syndrome. It's usually started by an injury or another issue of some sort. Instead of the pain going away, it stays. Um, It generally starts in one limb and then spreads to other limbs. I know it can be inconsistent where one day you could be in a minimal amount of pain that's manageable, and the next day it can be excruciating. Yes. I'm trying to remember how it's been described to me, like fire. Yes, it's like a lot of nerve pain, which has been described as well um, to me as like fire burning. And um, there's really nothing that calms the pain down. I've actually spoken with a couple CRPS patients this last week. Or this week, I don't know, days are blending together. It, it was very illuminating to speak with them. They had described it as like a burning type of pain, worse than anything they've ever had in their life. I know the experts have come to the trial and showed the pain scale. And this is like the worst pain above a kidney stone, above giving birth. And that it isn't just that it's like so painful extreme wise, but also it never ends. So the patients that I spoke with were like, you know, you've got your baseline, which like to most people would be incredibly painful, but that's like your baseline, your low level. So for you, you might look like you're okay because it's not excruciating and you've kind of learned how to tolerate it and go on with your life. But then there's other levels which are far beyond that. And it never goes away. So you're you're constantly living with that pain. And I think there's a, a level of tolerance, you know, just to, to be able to wake up every day. Yeah. Maya tries OTPT. And um, her mom is very... but she's, she's advocating. Yes. She was anything. a very strong advocate for her daughter and was looking for how can we help her? Because the PT and OT, she's just getting worse. You know, she wasn't looking to medicate her daughter. She was looking for her daughter to feel better and to not be in pain. So one of the things they did was they installed solar panels on the roof, connected it to their pool because uh, Dr. K said that warm water therapy might be helpful. I know they also looked into the hyperbaric chamber. chamber. Yeah. Which I've heard a lot of people with a variety of conditions have success from that. You know, there was actually even one of the doctors who said that Beata was telling him, I really would prefer to find a way to fix her pain that wasn't pharmaceutical. So if we could find something more natural, it's not going to affect her in that way. What are my options? So these people who are like, oh, she was a drug seeker. She just wanted to keep her kid medicated. The literal doctor that they saw went on the stand and said she was trying to find ways to help her daughter that weren't pharmaceutical. But when none of that worked, Dr. K said that the next step would be to try ketamine infusions. I have not heard a lot about ketamine except for in the rave scene, you know. Apparently they use it for anesthesia, right? Yes. But they're actually using a lot more recently. Like I've heard people that I know talk about either them or people they know that have used it for a variety of conditions and that it has this ability, not all the time, but sometimes to solve these problems that are unsolvable. We'll get into it in in the episode where we speak with the CRPS patients. All of them told me that it was the only thing that ever helped. 
So I guess Maya tries that. The low doses don't work. I think they try higher doses and she starts to see a little bit of improvement. Dr. K recommends that she try a ketamine coma, which is not done in America. I think at the time it was only done in Germany, Australia, and Mexico. Right. Off the Kowalski family goes to Mexico. She has a ketamine coma. Um, it doesn't sound particularly enjoyable, but when she gets back, she gains the use of her arms back. I've seen videos before and after that trip where before she like couldn't raise her arm above her shoulder and then afterwards she was able to put it over her head. Right. And then she starts gaining use in her legs back. At this point, she was in a wheelchair. She has dystonia, which is the toes pointing in, right? Right. Uh, she was having lesions, which happen with CRPS, where you have like marks on your skin and a variety of shapes. So allodynia is like you can touch someone with CRPS with a feather and to them it feels like a knife going through their skin. So she does a ketamine coma. She has incredible improvement, but then a hurricane comes and I have heard that hurricanes and stress can create another relapse and she has another relapse. I think also at that time she was stressed about some school stuff so that could have caused it. Either way she has a relapse. She starts having abdominal pain. Her family brings her to the hospital. When they get there she's in extreme pain. She's screaming crying. Inconsolable. Her mom gets there and she's stressed and you know the, the thing is I know you can relate to this. Yes. If I can relate to this, you can relate to this. When you go to doctor, to doctor, to doctor, to doctor, and only the specialists know the details about how to handle your kid, and then you have to go to a doctor who is not an expert in that, is incredibly frustrating, right? Not only that, having to retell the story over and over again. It's traumatic to just tell the story. Yeah. Yes. And then to try and explain, like, these are all the things we do when your daughter is screaming in pain. You really just want to say, this is what works. Trust me. We right. took a long time for us to get here. But all of the doctors with their big egos are looking at her like she's crazy. We should mention that she has a thick Polish accent. And as we all know, people from that side of the world sometimes are a little more blunt, especially those who grew up in a communist nation. I have a very close friend who grew up in a communist nation, but it's also from that part of the world. Very direct way of speaking. If you don't know her, you might think she's being not polite. I mean, it's just a, a way of speaking, right? Yes. And I think, you know, in situations like that, our mama bear comes out, you know, yes. we just want comfort for our kids. Yeah. I remember where uh, Baby Jack had an e overnight EKG one time and they were putting the stickies on him and he's very sensitive to sensory and he was freaking out and this stupid guy, I tried to explain, the guy was getting annoyed and I was getting annoyed. You're not having patience for my kid. So I said something like, oh, he's very sensory. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if you work with a lot of sensory kids, but those stickers, it doesn't feel good for him. It's a lot more uncomfortable than it would be for you. And he's like, I work with sensory kids all the time. So I'm like, well, be more considerate. Right. And, you know, sometimes it's hard as a mom to, I mean, it's always hard as a mom to see your kid in pain, right? Way harder than being a pain yourself. Yeah. And to keep your mouth shut and try and be polite isn't always possible. So she comes in on fire, like, we got to help my kid. This is what works. But also, we should note that multiple times, the quote history that Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital has given has been proven to be false. So when they say that she came in yelling at people, I'm not sure how much I believe that at this point. Um, it's likely not very accurate. Right. <laughs> They're like, oh, no, that's too much ketamine. We're not doing the ketamine. Like she just needs to do PT and OT. But the people she encounters in the hospital didn't even know what CRPS when she gets there is. And when she's trying to explain it, they're not interested. She's giving them the doctor's information. They're not calling the doctor. Some doctor comes to see them and is like, this is what our plan is. And I think it was basically PT and OT and we near off the ketamine. The family is like, okay, well, what you're doing, we've tried and hasn't helped her. So we're going to go ahead and take our daughter and leave. And that is where things go awry because the hospital tells them that if they leave against medical advice, they're concerned for their daughter's safety and they'll 
send security to bring them back to the room. And then they'll send police and they won't be allowed to leave. So the family, you know, they don't know the laws. They don't know that that's actually illegal. So they stay. And a couple days later, the child abuse report goes in. Ms. Sally Smith, the medical director of the CPT team, shows up in the room in a white lab coat, does not say who she is, according to the family. She actually walked in while Maya was eliminating, going to the bathroom, and her dad was having to help her. She was bent over. And this woman comes in, like, super rude, you know, starts asking all these questions. What we've learned is that Maya is a very modest, reserved young lady. So this was particularly uncomfortable for her. When I go to the hospital for me or for someone else, they're usually very respectful of that. Oh, do you need a change? I will leave. I'll knock before I come back in the room. Make sure you're changed. Even if they're about to, like, examine your hoo-ha, you know? Right. They give you privacy. This woman does not. She starts asking them all these questions questions about uh, Maya's history. Dr. Tepa is one of the doctors who called in an abuse report, which is fine. Like, if you suspect child abuse, I do not fault the hospital for calling it in. I fault them for everything that happened after and for preventing them from leaving when they had no evidence that the child was being abused. And how scary to think that a doctor can prescribe you medicine and you can follow the doctor's instructions and you could potentially lose your kid. That's terrifying. Yeah, you count on them to be the specialist in the area of expertise. I'm not a doctor. Even Beata as a nurse, like she didn't know about CRPS. She was learning from these doctors. And I just think like, how many times do you and I have a doctor tell us this is an off-label use of this med, but you know, it works and this is, you know, approved to do this. So this is like, what if somebody thought that was inappropriate? They tried to take our kids away. So I think a couple doctors called in an abuse report. Dr. Sally Smith did come in before the abuse report was called and was looking at Maya's medical records. Um, And then after the abuse report came in, that's when she walked in on Maya and her dad. Maya's 10 at this time. Basically, there's a shelter. They decide to not only shelter Maya, but put a no contact in with the mom. I have a really big problem with, I think... If you don't have hard evidence that a child is being abused, putting a no contact order in is such an overreach. Absolutely. The only time I've ever seen a no contact is when somebody had like actual proof that your child was physically or sexually abused. I'm not trying to diminish medical abuse, but if you don't have proof that a parent is doing that, how do you do a no contact? We had a kid that there was actual medical neglect and mom was diagnosed with Munchausen's. Really? I didn't know this. Yes. Um, he was on a feeding tube and she would turn his feeding tube off at <gasps> night, which is when he got his feeds very slowly and he was essentially starving. She turned it off because it made too much noise. So there wasn't even a no contact order for her. I mean, it's very abnormal. We have a lot of cases come through your house and my house. Yes. And it's very abnormal and only used to extreme situations. Like I can understand calling the abuse report in. I don't agree with the sheltering and I'll tell you why, but I definitely don't agree with the no contact order. I think that was the most harmful thing they did to this family. As soon as no contact- detrimental to Maya's mental health. I mean, think and- when your kids are sick, they want their mom. Exactly. And not just that, but she wasn't just sick. She was in a hospital and she didn't have anybody to advocate for her. I'm not saying she should have gone to a foster family because she should have just stayed with her family. But at least if she had a foster family, there would have been an adult a third party to advocate for her and maybe see what was going on. The report was against mom, not dad. Right. So really what should have happened initially was, and they said this, their lawyer said this, uh, Beata offered to leave the house immediately and let Maya come home and they wouldn't let that happen because they didn't believe that dad would keep mom away. Well, keep her in the hospital. And allow dad to be there. Right, to have full access. Don't nurses, patient care techs coming in and out of the room. So here's the problem. Without Maya having one of her parents to advocate for her because they were prevented. I mean, dad didn't have no contact and he was allowed visits. But they were, if she wasn't sheltered, he would probably have just have been there the whole time. Right? Absolutely. When your kid's in the hospital, that's what you do. But he was allowed to visit like, you know, maybe a couple times a week or whatever. And... Like, you're not there to make sure that your child is being cared for and then nobody's taking advantage of her. Well, I've had a kid that's been hospitalized that was sheltered and 
the hospital allowed mom to be there. Same mom with medical neglect. Oh, stop. <laughs> she, at the same hospital. So weird. At the so same weird. hospital. So she was allowed to be there. So somebody was actually diagnosed with Munchausen was allowed to be there with her child. But this woman who, when she was evaluated for Munchausen, it was determined she did not have Munchausen, couldn't even call her daughter on the phone initially. So the problem is nobody's there to protect Maya. So what happens? She's vulnerable. She's a sweet, adorable, smart little girl. This social worker, Kathy Beatty, she is a prime target. It's been said that maybe she wanted to adopt her because she did say that to Maya. I think she has one kid. So maybe she wanted a sibling. I don't know. But this woman, she somehow gets herself assigned to Maya, which is abnormal practice for the hospital because normally you take whatever floor you're assigned to and you just handle those cases that day. No matter what floor she was on, she would always handle Maya's case. And she said she was asked, but there is proof of another social worker saying to her, thank you for volunteering to follow Maya to this floor. So I read that as well. And when you, when you learn and get to know Kathy Beatty, that makes a lot of sense. She's aggressive. And Maya's like, everywhere I went, she was there. Every time I turned around, she was there. I couldn't have a phone call with my parents without her sitting there, holding the phone, rolling her eyes, making comments under her breath. And then, you know, there's the situation where Kathy comes into the room and this, this was part of the trial. Yes. Uh, a jury of her peers determined that this happened. Kathy came in her room one morning and said, if you want to go to court and see your mom, I will need to take pictures of you and you will need to take your clothes off. And Maya started crying. As we said, she's very modest. She did not want that to happen. And Kathy said, well, if you want to see your mom, it's going to have to happen. So Maya cried and negotiated with her and convinced Kathy to let her keep her um, little shorts on that she wore under her dress and a sports bra. You can see in the picture, she was crying. When questioned about it, Kathy said that she wasn't crying. But in the nurse's notes, it said she was tearful and trying to get it to stop. And they had to hold her down. So the story changed, interestingly. Like, you can say you didn't do that, but you put that in the medical record or the nurse did that was helping you. They said that they took the pictures because she was going to court and they needed to make sure that she left and came back the same way. But then they also said they took the pictures to show the lesions. Interestingly, they called CPI to get permission to take the pictures and CPI said, we're going to take our own pictures when she gets to the courthouse. So they were told that CPI was taking their own pictures. Right. They got permission from risk management to take pictures anyways. That was an assault and battery on Maya, according to the jury yesterday, and a horrendous thing to do to a little girl. Oh, and that's the other thing. They said it was for the medical records. It never went into the medical records. Right. So what were those pictures for? To be honest, I think it was like a matter of like wanting to have control yeah. and show her that she was powerless. Look, we can make you get naked and take pictures of you. Yeah. The other thing that was really bad, well, there were so many bad things. Kathy Beatty took her down to the chapel. She has a very strong Catholic faith, which went into the whole thing. They wouldn't let her have communion. They wouldn't let her priest come. She wanted to go to the chapel. Kathy finally takes her to the chapel to tell her that, what, she's not going home for Christmas? Right. Sits her on her lap. Kathy said she asked to go on her lap. She's like, I did not ask to go on her lap. I like she literally made my skin crawl. Like the last thing I wanted to do was go on her lap. She hugged her and kissed her and said, I'm not trying to be your mom, but I can be, which is so creepy. And Maya was like, I just wanted to go back to my room because as much as I wanted to be in the chapel, I wanted to be away from her. So that was totally inappropriate. And the jury decided that was, I think, a battery. I can't remember. I, I heard it I yesterday. I, I One think of the batteries. Battery. And then because you're not supposed to be kissing and hugging. Absolutely not. Like, I think that if it was in a different construct, like the kissing is too far. Like that's and the lap is a 10 year old girl. Remember I had that situation with the gal who put yes. my 10 year old girl on his lap. Yes. And he wouldn't stop. And like, that is not not creepy, dude. Not professional. But totally then again, it. totally crossing the line. 100%. Especially after I made it clear that it was inappropriate. The fact that he kept doing it was creepy, yeah. which is why he had to go. Anyways, uh, I think the, the last thing that was like a really big deal was they were convinced she did not have CRPS and she was faking it. So here's the thing. Like, did her mom have Munchausen and she was a victim or was she the... They, they treated her like she was the bad guy. 
Absolutely. They, the way they talked to her, like one nurse walked up to her when I think she said a nurse came when she had an accident and was, or maybe she needed to get up and move to another room. And, and the nurse started yelling at her. We know you can walk. We all know you're lying. Just get up. Just was screaming at her. And obviously she couldn't walk, so she didn't get up. And um, the lady was very rough with her when she moved her, which obviously when you have allodynia is a huge problem. Just everybody there convinced that she doesn't have CRPS. None of them have expertise in CRPS. Uh, eventually her dad and her brother can start visiting her. Eventually she gets phone calls with her mom, but then Kathy Beatty puts an end to that. Sally Smith was involved in the case way longer than she needed to be. She sent messages directing them to like wean her off all the meds. The messages going back and forth between doctors were totally inappropriate. They called her ketamine girl. Yeah. Disgusting. And then the really bad day happened. In January of 2017, where um, I think they had gone to court. They were told that Maya wasn't coming home, which they were hopeful for. And then the attorney asked the judge if Beata could at least hug her daughter. Like, they're in the courtroom in front of everybody. And she just hugged her daughter. And the judge would not allow that to happen, which is the most disgusting, freaking thing. And if that woman is still a judge... Like, she should not be. Somebody should do something about that. Right. Like, the hospital were freaking monsters. Okay? Monsters. The way they treated her. The way they neglected and abused her. But her dependency case did not go as it should have. No, not at all. Have you ever seen a dependency case go like that? Where parents are so cut off and nobody really cares about the In fact, just the opposite, you know? (laughs) The opposite tends to be the case, but we're finding all of these cases happening where it's like, what went wrong? Well, pretty much everything. The judge was shit. The case manager was shit. The CPI was shit. The CPT, Sally Smith, she was definitely shit. Also, I think she still practices and has her license. Yes. And works at Fifth Avenue Pediatrics in St. Pete. For those of you who might have kids in St. Pete, maybe don't go there. I'm not going to all children's anymore. Well, we have... All of our kids' specialty doctors at All Children's. Um, Can you switch to USF? I've pretty much got everybody at USF now. So for some of our specialties... You can, but... Yeah, they're they're already USF physicians, so they're familiar with our case. Yeah. So it's not going to be that difficult. The only thing we we all get stuck in is uh, early steps. But I kind of consider it different. That yeah, I think that. it's a different computer system. So absolutely. Let's go with that. We can hope. Yeah. I mean, being foster parents, your foster kids often get referrals to early steps, which technically is run under all children's. But anyways, aside from that, like anytime I'm getting a list of like, which doctor do you want to do? I will pick anybody but then. And I don't know the specifics of this, but do you think that early steps is under all children's because that's how they run the funding and the grant for yeah, early possibly. steps. And so I, I think there have been some questions to any grant monies that go through all children's. Yeah. So I'm curious to see how that's going to work out. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So the judge denies a hug. I think it was that night or the next night. Beata's wrapping a present for them to go to a kid's party. Kyle, Jack and Beata. Maya's still stuck in the hospital. Which is also another thing with the dependency case. That they left Kyle, Kyle in the house. If they really thought that Beata was dangerous, so dangerous she couldn't hug her damn daughter, right. why is Kyle there? Exactly. None of this makes sense. This was weird. Yes. All these various parties are supposed to be working independently and checking and balancing, and every single one of them, it was the worst possible scenario. It's like a fine example <laughs> of how our system of care fails children and families. Yeah. And in various ways. So it's like either one way too wrong or the other way too wrong a lot Absolutely. of the time. So this judge denies a hug. Uh, Beata, <clears throat> Beata wraps some presents for her and Jack to take Kyle to a kid's party. Beata tells Jack and Kyle that she has a migraine. So to go on to the party without her, she's going to lay down and sleep. They come home. Her door is shut. So they assume she's sleeping. A little later, Beata's brother walks into the house like, I think he walked in and they were like, oh, Beata's napping. She has a migraine. Her brother walks into the garage and screams. And Jack said when he heard the scream, he knew. And she had hung herself. 
Um, and she was Ernie dead. Jack was a firefighter. You hear on the 911 call that he's like, no, she's she's long gone. She's cold. 911 calls horrid. You can hear Kyle in the background screaming. And their whole life changed that day. Absolutely. Um, I, I can't even imagine. Episode came out today about something that happened with one of my kids. And having someone limit my ability to make medical decisions for my child for just about a week made me crazy. I'm telling you, I, it was the worst, scariest feeling. And, um, that was a week. Yeah. I know exactly what you're speaking about. Yeah. Same thing for us. We were in a similar situation for a week, two different times both of the situations about a week and you can't make decisions. And, and then you're living in fear that if you push too hard, especially right. after this situation has come out with Maya, are, are there going to be implications? People look at this and they're like, why did she kill herself? That's so stupid. She could have gotten her kid back. That's forever. Like, why would you do this? I've never had a like a suicidal tendency or anything like that. But after a week, I, I can imagine that three months could definitely put yes. you there. You're so desperate. I can't, I can't even, uh, so Maya gets to come home and, and Beata wrote in a letter. I see her withering away and basically this is not word for word, I, but basically she's getting worse and I am powerless to help her and this can't go on. And the only way to fix this is to take me out of the equation. And this is the only way Maya's going to be able to come home and that the family is going to be able to take care of Maya. So uh, that's what she does. And she did also write a scathing letter to the judge telling her that she had a heart of stone, which I love. Yeah. I hope that judge took that to heart because she was totally out of line and overreaching. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of things happened after that. Um, anybody who thought that Maya's mom was creating a condition can be disproven by the fact that Maya has had relapses since her mom has passed away. Um, the really bad thing is there was a court order when she went home that she could never have ketamine again. And that if she did, she could be removed again. Fortunately, next month she turns 18 and she can do whatever she wants. There has to be some way that they can drop that court order. They did go to Dr. Chopra, who's like the number one CRPS guy, who is the GOAT. I loved him on the trial. Yeah. They were like, you don't even have hospital privileges. He goes, I don't want hospital privileges. Right? <laughs> Anyways, she does again get confirmed diagnosis of CRPS by him, but the court still does not allow her to get ketamine. So the only medicine that any CRPS patient will say works is ketamine, and it's the one thing she's not allowed to have until once you're 18 like, they can't take you away from your dad anymore, so right. she'll be able to make her own decision on that if she wants to do that next month. And I would be surprised if she didn't, since the court has stressed her out to the point that she's got lesions coming back, and hopefully not, but potentially a relapse in her future. After all of this happened, somehow a Netflix documentary got made, and then the lawsuits, of course, which... I, I want to say ended yesterday, but we know they'll go to appeals. Thank the good Lord. And that family won about $260 million from Johns Hopkins. I thought it would be more with the punitives. Right. But I think the important thing was that they said yes to every single count. And I was watching Maya respond and she wasn't, she wasn't care about the numbers. Like, no, she wasn't re- like you could see her body react every time they said yes. She would start shaking and sobbing. But her body didn't change when they said the numbers. And then afterwards, there was an interview and she's like, I feel like I finally got to see justice. Right. Um, and that they believed me. But none um, of that's bringing me out of it. No. You know? Yeah. The money, like, the money is more about, like, punishing them. But it is what it is. I wish it would have been more. But here's the good thing. I don't know that it's the good thing. There's so many other families that this happened to that weren't able to sue because when... Maya's family wanted to start this lawsuit. The attorney they had was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you right. know? And apparently they went to a lot of lawyers and they were all like that. Like, I'm not going against Jay Hatch and I'm not wasting all those years to just be crushed by those hospital lawyers. So that speaks a lot to Frank Anderson and his team for stepping up and caring so much about the family that they've spent the past, what, seven years fighting this battle and and not knowing if there would ever be a penny. Right. Yeah. So that's what happened with Maya. And there is a reason, Lynn, why I invited you here today. I was hoping you could share your story. A lot of other people who 
had similar stories. And some of them, there was a man who was put into jail for, was it like three years based on a false allegation by Sally Smith? And there's another family that's suing now. And so hopefully more people who had this type of experience will have the courage to step out and will be able to find lawyers who are willing to fight this. And because this is groundbreaking and nobody's ever done this before, then that kind of creates an opportunity for like, listen, we all know when abuse happens, it needs to be handled. Like you can't leave kids in dangerous situations. You have to make calls if you think child abuse is happening, but you have to handle it ethically. You cannot tear a family apart and not do everything 100% above board. So again, (laughs) I ask if you could share your story. So our story began when our son was in fourth grade. Basically, he woke up one morning with an extremely high fever. Fourth grade is like 10 years old, right? Yes. Okay, so that's the same ages. Yes. Mine was... And he couldn't get out of bed. He couldn't walk. Um, He told us that even the covers, the sheet on his bed hurt his legs to touch him. Wow. And so immediately, you know, we call the pediatrician. He sends us for labs. Our son's labs came back that some of his levels um, for inflammation and um, like autoimmune stuff were really elevated. And so at that time, he sent us straight to... Uh, another children's hospital in the area. Our son was there for a couple of weeks and they did all kinds of tests. They couldn't find anything other than the elevated labs. And so one of the doctors there told us that it was probably an isolated incident. They didn't know what happened. Was it still happening at this point or was it just... He was still very sick. He still would spike a fever. But of course, when, when he first went to the emergency room, they started antibiotics, IV antibiotics. So if there were any kind of infection in his body, the antibiotics were kind of like calming it down, you know? So once they did, they did do cultures and like blood cultures and stuff. And it was explained to us later that because he had already had antibiotics, it was kind of, you know, covering it. They didn't really, they weren't able to see if there were any kind of infection. After a couple of weeks, we were sent home. He was still in a great deal of pain. In the hospital, they gave him morphine. And we had already seen some doctors for some neurological things that were going on with him that were on staff at that hospital. So, of course, they came in and and gave their opinion of what was going on. And they, they had known us for years. So we come home and he doesn't get any better. And it was at first one leg and then two legs. He continued to spike fevers. And so we continued to go back to the original hospital. And we were told that perhaps it was psychological. I'm not sure how you can psychologically give yourself a fever, but yeah. And so we did hospital hop. I look back at our situation now. That was before I was ever involved in child welfare and fostering. And I think, how are we not targeted before then because you know we hopped all over the state of florida to different hospitals but you know what isn't that what you do when you're trying to help your kid yes you the answers go to or the doctor you go to isn't like it's one thing if we're talking about something objective right yes like i go to a doctor I think my kid's leg's broken. It's not broken. I go to another doctor to see if it's broken. That's doctor shopping. I go to one doctor. They test him and he's negative for blank. I go to another doctor to test. You know what I mean? Like, right. If there is a problem and you're not getting a solution, you don't go home and say, well, guess you're fine. We're going to live with this now. We're just going to live with fever and pain. And the doctor said, you're good. And that was isolated. So we're just going to pretend you're not in pain. Suck it up, buddy. It's in your head, right? I mean, who says that? Yeah. And so we had just came home from um, a hospital in Gainesville where we were told, we don't know what it is. Follow up with your pediatrician. So we came home and that night we were sitting at the dinner table and our son started laughing hysterically. We would ask him, what are you laughing at? And then he's hallucinating. And we were like, what? He's not on pain medication at this point. So I I thought he's He's already hallucinating from the pain. Yes. Wow. But I had already had that 
thought in my mind, maybe it is psychological, you know? Yeah. And so now he's laughing hysterically and hallucinating. Maybe he's like lost his mind. Of course, we loaded him up in a race to Johns Hopkins. And when we got there, of course, he was hysterical, just screaming, crying, writhing in pain. Um, Of course... I had all of my ducks in a row as far as my records from other hospitals that we had gone to. The original lab reports had all of that. And our pediatrician is not on staff at All Children. So we had everything we needed to have with us at the time. And during this time, throughout the years, this had gone on for years. But in the early stages, they had done MRIs and CT scans of his legs. But no one had done a plain film x-ray of his legs. So when we get to All Children's, they immediately did just a plain film x-ray. And they were able to see a big hole in one of his bones. And thinking about what was different in our situation and Maya's, you know, there was hard, fast evidence yeah. that there was something going on other than just CRPS. But throughout the whole time of being at All Children's, that was one of the diagnoses that they were talking about, that it was CRPS or, again, psychological. So, of course, we had All Children's psychiatrists. They did a whole neuropsych and we did the OTPT, all kinds of stuff. Whatever they recommended, we did it. Um, They even did this thing. I I forget what it's called, but basically he went in a room and they did like, they moved their hands over his body. Reiki. Reiki. Yes. They tried to do, okay, so they tried to do that on Maya. And this is one of the things they held against Beata because Beata is Catholic. And and when she saw the Reiki stuff, she was like, that looks like witchcraft. I don't want you to do that on her. Scary for sure for us. They looked at that negatively because listen, I think it's great if you have different options and more than just your classical medicine, especially because something like CRPS is so rare and there's so little that works. Like, hey, if you can find something that works, awesome. But don't hold it against a parent. It's something that non-traditional they wouldn't be comfortable with. Right. Especially, like, I grew up Catholic. I can totally understand why someone would look at that and be like, I don't want that. Of course, we did several Reiki sessions and it made no difference. And I think another thing that helped us with our situation is that one of the doctors from another area hospital was also on staff at All Children's. And so when we went to All Children's, of course, they consulted with him. And he then seen the hole in our son's bone. He started doing some really intense like infection control and trying to find out what kind of infection he wanted to do a bone biopsy. We also had uh, an orthopedic team on the process. And so the orthopedic doctor, the infectious disease doctor and the rheumatologist were all disagreeing about what the next step should be. Can I ask what year this was? It was from 2000. Five to about 2010 that we were walking through this whole situation. And then he was put on a regimen for treatment. So this is like nine years before yes. Maya. For John Hopkins to not really have specialists that understand it and hearing that nine years before Maya's situation, that was a diagnosis that they talked about with our son. That's so weird. Yes. A hole in the bone is not CRPS related, right? No, it's not CRPS, but... Was it a injury or a different? Because so that's what so I'm at first that- they thought it was an injury. Yeah, um, and that's why they first brought up CRPS because there was an injury there, yeah. and they thought you know that it was from the injury. Then it happened in the other leg as well. Same thing with the other leg. Eventually, an infection was in the other bone. You know, through a whole process of going back and forth with the different doctors, one of the doctors wanted to do a biopsy, a bone biopsy, and one of the lesions on his bone was um, in a growth plate. Oh. So it involved growth of his leg. If they did a biopsy, it could affect the growth of his leg. It could close the growth plate um, on one of his legs. And so we had the orthopedic oncologist because there was some concern that it may be cancer. Also, the infectious disease doctor and the rheumatologist all going back and forth, wanting to do a biopsy, somebody saying not to. And then even my husband and myself were in, we disagreed. 
you know, I'm like, I don't know what this is. Nobody knows what it is. They think it may be some sort of terminal cancer. Like, if it was terminal cancer, like, who cares if the exactly. leg grows? Uh, you but... can cut his leg off for all I care. I want my son to be alive, right? Yeah. So, so I'm like, okay, let's do the biopsy. Let's start treatment. And one of the doctors came to us and said, you know, there's other hospitals that specialize in cancer, and maybe you can even go there another state. So we arranged to have an appointment there. And then the doctor that was really pushing for us to have the biopsy got a court order. Wait, what? Yes. They got a court order to do the biopsy. To do the biopsy without your permission? Yes. Wow. At all children's? Yes. Oh, I am so not surprised. I didn't know that and I'm shocked. But I am not surprised. Our rheumatologist that was there came to me separately and said, there's another girl in the hospital. They're getting ready to leave. And the mom wants me to share with anyone who may have a child with this kind of diagnosis that she can be reached out to. This is her room number. He didn't give me her name. I went there just as they were about to leave the room. And I said, the doctor reached out to me and said that I could come and see you. And, you know, I'm sure with HIPAA violations and, oh my gosh, it could have been big. She said, absolutely. Here's the doctor we're seeing. She's a research rheumatologist. Reach out to her. Anyway, so I reached out to that doctor. And in reaching out to that doctor and the rheumatologist, our son got a different diagnosis. Um, They decided it's not CRPS. It's something called CRMO, which is chronic recurrent multifocal osteomyelitis. And wow, that's a mouthful. Yes, right. Osteomyelitis is... um, you know, infection of the bone. However, his is chronic and recurrent. So it it continues to happen over and over and over. So that's the reason. And it it took us five years to get a diagnosis. Not only did it take us five years, but it took flying to Iowa to see a research rheumatologist that specialized in CRMO. And she consulted with our rheumatologist here and they developed a treatment plan. So there was no treatment for CRMO at the time. It was like a syndrome. So he he had Crohn's and um, rheumatoid arthritis. There were a lot of things linked in with this syndrome. And so we started a treatment that wasn't FDA approved. Um, So our insurance didn't cover it. And it was... um, over $10,000 a month, and he needed an, infu- an infusion every four weeks. However, once he did receive the Crohn's diagnosis, the same medication, it's a Remicade infusion, the same medication is used to treat Crohn's. So then we were able to bill it um, oh, thank goodness. as a Crohn's. But, you know, we still had some hefty bills before that I mean, happened. Sounds like it. Yes. So he went to All Children's every four weeks. And got his IV infusion. And we also went to Tampa General and did their pain clinic and stayed there for a couple of weeks and trying to get him rehabilitated so that he could walk because he had been in a wheelchair. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a lot like CRPS. Absolutely. The feelings of just, you just feel so desperate as a parent. Yeah. You know, we had the same visits from hospital staff that Maya's family did. And Interesting. So Sally Smith. Kathy Beatty. Do you have any memory of like the impression of them? I just remember thinking, I believed that they all were hospital employees. So Sally Smith didn't differentiate herself from other Johns Hopkins, all children's employees. No. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing from these other people. And very intimidating. I just wanted him to have pain relief, you know, whatever the cost. And did he get the biopsy? He did. Wow. And it was not cancer. Do you know if it ever affected his growth plates? No, we continued to keep monitoring that. And, and it was you know, okay. Doing, yes, Thanks goodness, to make because sure. you know Johns Hopkins too then. Oh my gosh. The day we came home from the hospital, we had to leave Johns Hopkins to go to Iowa. So our plan was to come home for a couple of days and then fly to Iowa, which was also an ordeal because he couldn't fly on a regular airplane. Justin was on methadone, dilated, like heavy pain medication by the time we got to Iowa. And it, it was really hard. But the day that we came home from Johns Hopkins, we were home less than 30 minutes. And my cousin called and said, she lived down the street from us. She said, there's somebody 
on our street asking for you, and I think it is some someone with child protection services. It was interesting. And this was before you were a foster parent. Oh, absolutely. I did work for a program with Healthy Start. I, I was more familiar with the child welfare system and fostering and DCF than than the average, I think. So, of course, they come to our house, and we were right in the middle of a big move. Because of all of the medical expenses, we had to sell our home, and we moved to my parents' house. And my parents moved out. My parents were in the middle of moving out. We were in the middle of moving in. There are boxes everywhere, and CPI shows up. So, of course, we just came home from the hospital, and I had a bag with all of our documents and everything like the x-rays, whole nine yards. So when they come in, I'm like laying it all out. Our neurologist who has known us for so many years isn't affiliated with Johns Hopkins. And he definitely went to bat for us. And, And I look at all of those things and I'm so thankful that we had you know, people that knew us backing us saying, look, this, there's no way. How could a mom cause a a hole in a bone, right? Right. And, and our son also has some other medical. He has an AVM, which is a aneurysm type thing. It's an arterial venous malformation in his brain. So he was followed by the neurologist for that as well. But that also in the report talks about how he constantly had some kind of a medical thing going on. And, and they were concerned that mom was causing some of the things. Wow. And I remember a CPI Sally was there. Smith. Yes, Sally Smith. I remember as they were there asking, you know, what can we do? This is going to affect our jobs because my husband and I both worked with children. The investigator said, I don't think you understand. This isn't about your husband. This is about you. So immediately... Probably like Beata, like, okay, I'll move out. What do I have to do? Anyways. Fortunately, you didn't have an accent. Fortunately. Fortunately, my parents were still on the property, so they rallied around us and they were like, what do we need to do to help? And our neighborhood was a family neighborhood. So I had cousins and aunts and uncles all there. There are so many things that I look at our situation and go, you know what? They didn't have a chance because we had such a support system. Even in our child welfare system, as foster parents, you look at our families and the kids that we care for and you see they don't have the support system that we had. And I think that's that's such a need, you know, and I think it really makes a difference in things. So our story ended much differently than Maya's. And I'm grateful that we didn't have to. He was never removed. No one was ever removed. They weren't removed. The case was closed. And I worked in my job situation closely with DCF. So immediately I like show up at the DCF office and I'm like, okay, so this is happening. Who called in this report? I want a copy of the report, you know, being very forceful. And we were provided with all of the information. And of course it's anonymous. So you don't know exactly who called it in, but by reading it, you can definitely read between the lines. And years later, I look back at it with more child welfare experience and go, oh, there's no doubt in my mind. So, and and, you know, fast forward, when you say Sally Smith is still involved, absolutely, because we've had a situation recently over the last couple of years where we had to go to Johns Hopkins and they held us in the doctor's office and would not allow us to leave until they talked to Sally Smith. Oh my gosh. Yes. So why is she getting so involved? Exactly. Clearly, we're going to start hearing more stories about Sully Smith, about Kathy Beatty and Johns Hopkins, because, you know, people have just been afraid to say anything. But hopefully this little 10-year-old slash 17-year-old girl will make the rest of us brave, too. I hope so. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.